Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Heather Ann Thompson at Dakota County Library, Wentworth. Acclaimed writer and prison reform advocate, Dr. Heather Ann Thompson is the winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for History. Thompson won that high honor for Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Rebellion of 1971 and its legacy, the first definitive account of our country's largest and most notorious prison rebellion. In addition to the Pulitzer, the 2016 title also garnered Dr. Thompson the Bancraft Prize in American History and put her in the running for a National Book Award and the prestigious Los Angeles Book Prize. Furthermore, over a dozen publications, including the New York Times, Bloomberg, Newsweek, and Publishers Weekly, singled out Blood in the Water for their top 10 books of the year lists. TriStar Pictures recently optioned Blood in the Water for adaptation into a feature film penned by Hollywood screenwriters Anna Waterhouse and Joe Shrapnel. Heather Ann Thompson is a native of Detroit and professor at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her previous book-length research project includes Who's Detroit? Politics, Labor, and Race in a Modern American City. Thompson makes use of slides in her Clubbook discussion, which can be found at clubbook.org slash podcast. And now, Heather Ann Thompson. Thank you so much for, for having me here. Um, this, is a, this is a great opportunity to get to share my book, and this is very nice because this is a smaller setting, so I don't have to shout, and we can actually have time for questions, hopefully, uh, uh, about the book. Uh, and to tell you about the book, I have a ton of slides that I want to share with you to kind of punctuate the talk. And I'm going to promise that I'll get to the, the Attica portion of the talk. Uh, but what I'd like to do is first set the stage for why it is that I think that it's important that we think about Attica or talk about Attica today uh, in Minnesota. Uh, 2017, seemingly so far removed from this event that happened 46 years ago, and also just so geographically removed. Why would this book resonate or matter to anybody? Because I think that in order to really talk about Attica, we have to talk about where we are today. And when I talk about where we are today, what I'd like to tell you about is something that actually now most of us know about, but believe it or not, even five years ago, it was not really much in our public discussion. And that is that we are the world's largest incarcerator, the world's largest jailer. 
And when we, when we get this up, I'm going to show you some slides to really animate just exactly what I mean by that. Not only do we have more people incarcerated than any other moment in American history, any other moment in American history, but we're also an international outlier. This is kind of the boring graphics. This is the lecture history part of it, but I think it's important. If you look at the top graph, you'll notice that prison rates in this country were really, really stable for a long, long period of time. In fact, throughout most of American history. And then suddenly they just go through the roof. And if you could see this graph more closely, you could see that every time there was a major jump in the prison population, it was because of a very specific political act. In other words, largely divorced from the crime rate, largely divorced from what was happening, in fact, in people's lives. And if you actually look at the graph on the bottom left, this is when we start the war on crime, which is in 1965. And you'll notice something pretty interesting, which is that the murder rate had not been that low since the 19-teens when we started the war on crime. Something also interesting, that the violent crime rate, the thing that we were ostensibly there to correct when we started the war on crime in 1965, gets catastrophically worse when we are knee deep in the war on crime. So there's a lot of things here that we have to explain as historians. There's a lot of things that are just not obvious how we got here. That prison rate, again, puts us internationally way outside the bounds of what is normal. We aren't just a little bit outside of the bounds of what's normal. It doesn't matter whether I compare us to uh, China, Rwanda, um, Russia. It makes absolutely no difference what, what country I put up here. We are so much of an outlier internationally. And as many of us are well aware, this is also a severely racially disproportionate prison population. It's not just anybody who gets locked up, but it's way disproportionately black and brown communities. And I'm bringing to you a different graphic down here at the bottom right because I think it really drives home how startling this is. This is the racial incarceration disproportionality in South Africa at the height of apartheid versus this country right now. And it shows you that we are even disproportionate and an outlier comparing ourselves to apartheid South Africa. So needless to say, this means that we have a lot, we have a lot to explain. One of the reasons why we have such severe racial disproportionality is because of the drug war. That is where the heaviest policing goes on that leads to the heaviest uh, increase in incarceration. And you can quickly see that that's where the disproportionality is particularly staggering is in the drug war. And if I, you know, I'm a college professor, so no matter where I give a talk, there's always some, usually some young college kids in the audience. And um, the next slide does not surprise them, even though it surprises a lot of voters, which is that the reason why we have so much disproportionality is not in fact because of who's doing the crime is doing the time. In fact, all white kids in college know that white kids like their marijuana as much as the next group. And in fact, that white kids, there are more white folks in general that both sell drugs and use drugs than any other racial group. But that is not at all what we see in the political sphere and what we see in the incarceration rates. Now, all of this would be alarming enough if we didn't actually look at something that is now becoming legalized in this country, something like marijuana. So this is a really interesting graph because you look at all these major counties in the United States, and this is who's getting arrested for just marijuana, not heroin, 
not Molly, not crack cocaine, just marijuana, and look at the racial disproportionality. Meanwhile, we have certain states that are legalizing marijuana and people are able to make a profit off of it. So needless to say, we have got a really, really mixed up criminal justice system that is a lot of folks out there talking about it as a need for reform, as one of the greatest civil rights crises of our century. And I wear a different hat where I do a lot of talks on that. And I really talk about why it's uh, uh, you know, destroying communities, why we need to fix this. But what I want to draw our attention to is actually the prison itself and point out that despite all this uh, buildup and despite all of this attention to crime fighting, we actually have the worst conditions in prisons that we have ever had. Worse than in Attico that I'm going to tell you about, worse than in 1971. And one of the reasons for this is that in addition to getting tough on crime, we got extremely punitive emotionally. We became a society that didn't care about folks that were locked up, that decided that they were animals, they didn't deserve human rights, they didn't deserve civil rights. And again, as a historian, this is something that we have to explain. Because in 1971, on the eve of the Attica Uprising, which I promise I'm going to get to, um, most American poll Americans polled were against the death penalty. They were actually moving towards community corrections, away from high rates of incarceration, believed that guards should get more training, believed that basic human rights should go to prisoners, and that human rights were deserved behind bars. Today, you know that all of those things have largely gone out the window, and that has led to some of the worst prison conditions in decades. We're talking about prisons where there are maggots in people's food. We are talking about serious levels of abuse against folks that are locked up inside, but also assaults on guards who work on the inside because these places are so overcrowded, so awful, and basically are so stretched at the seams in terms of how many folks are in there and how little humanity is in there. Now this would again all be bad enough if it were not the case that it was also a huge failure. This is a system that we all pay huge amounts of money for, even if we don't realize it through our taxation. Uh, by the way, money that we're not spending on schools and we're not spending on roads and we're not spending on uh, social programs. And it is a huge failure. There's no other institution that we give this amount of money to that has a 70% failure rate. And that's just if you use basic recidivism as a rate. If there was a school that has a 70% dropout rate, you can be sure that the state would shut it down yesterday. And you could be sure that voters would refuse to give one more dime to it. But this is a system that we not only support, but we do so with aggressive hostility. We do so as if the people in there are not us, are not our children, are, not, are no one we know. And so part of what we have to explain is not just why we started the war on crime, which I do in my other work, and it has a lot to do, for example, with a real backlash to the civil rights movement, a real clamping down on disorder in the streets in 1965, particularly in the wake of civil rights rebellions and urban rebellions in places like Philadelphia and Rochester and Harlem in 64. Or think about it this way, it's when the civil rights movement comes north. You know, it was one thing when it was south and all these northern mayors could say, you know, those crackers down there, 
You know, what's, what's going on? We need to send some federal troops down there. But when all of a sudden it's Milwaukee that's exploding, or when it's Detroit that's exploding, all of a sudden the politicians start sounding just like Sheriff Bull Connor. It's not legitimate civil rights, it's crime, it's disorder, we need to beef up law enforcement. But the thing that nobody has really tried to get a handle on is, well, that's one thing to decide we're gonna have a war on crime, but where do we get this hostility from? Where do we get this vengeful, vengeful spirit from? Because frankly, that's actually not particularly American. Um, the American ethos is actually much more about, you know, individual redemption. People have the opportunity to improve themselves. People have the opportunity to, to re-enter society, or at least this is something that we imagine ourselves to be. So where do we get this punitive ethos? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that events such as what happened at Attica are critically important to understanding this. Now, not just Attica, and I'll give you other examples like Attica, but if we understand Attica, and we understand that when we got that history wrong as a nation, that there were really dire consequences for this. The story I want to tell you about the importance of Attica takes us first back to this graph, that big jump in prison population. Now, again, it's a little difficult to see, but what you would see if you could get a, a zeroed in is that the prison population very specifically starts to go up in the 70s, right? But if we were to blow this out and look at it even more specifically, you would see that it actually goes up very specifically after 1972. There's something very specific that happens where all of a sudden the prison populations go ch -ch -ch -ch, and then there's a few other key spikes like during President uh, Clinton's uh, Violent Crime Control Act in 1994. There's a few moments when it goes up, but 72 is a critical one. And that has everything to do with Attica. All right, here we are at Attica. So Blood in the Water is the book that I wrote on the Attica prison uprising. And I will tell you that this was, I could do an entire talk for you on the writing of this book. Uh, the adventure of writing this book. It took me 13 years to write this book. And in part, it was because of the difficulty of doing research. And I'm happy to talk about this in Q&A. It is its own kind of weird cloak and dagger story. But I will just hint right now that part of that is uh, this little uh, headline to the top left. In 1976, the then governor of uh, New York, Hugh Carey, essentially shut down all inquiries into Attica, closed the books on it, shut away all the records, and said, it's done. We're not talking about Attica anymore. Well, I'm the uh, you know, hapless researcher who didn't get the memo. And then for the next 13 years, I'm trying to find the records. And some of these headlines are, is me battling back and forth between like the state troopers in upstate New York trying to get the records. And I will just hint enough to say to you that I could never have done this book without the survivors, both the guards and the prisoners who kept insisting on telling their story, and also through uh, a series of complete lucky breaks. And that should alarm you because the story I'm gonna tell you, uh, we wouldn't know had I not had those lucky breaks and that scares me about the importance of prisons being these closed institutions that we should have a right to know what goes on in them. Okay, so the Attica story. So Attica is in upstate New York. It is a tiny town in upstate New York. And if you drive through Attica, it's a very cute town. It looks like it's straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. And then you leave just past the 
bandstand and the little league field, and this is what you see. This fortress that was built during the Great Depression, and it is really eerie because like just across the street there's cows grazing and a red barn and crickets in the field, and then there's this. This was built during the Great Depression. It looked exactly like the Great Depression in 1971. And when I was inside of this place in 2004, which by the way, I mean, now I'm prisons all the time, but that was the first time I'd ever been inside of a prison. I'm calling my husband, I'm going in. I was like terrified. I mean, it's sort of embarrassing, you know, when I think back on like how fearful I was of prisons. And, um, but, it's, it, but it was meant to intimidate. And this place in 1971 was packed to uh, the walls with over 2,400 men. Again, not all, but overwhelmingly black and brown men, all poor men from uh, the various boroughs by New York City, um, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse. And, um, and the guards were these young, working class white kids from upstate New York who didn't particularly want to go into corrections, but what were they going to do? There's no particular job prospects. Many had just come back from Vietnam or couldn't go to Vietnam for various reasons. And they all end up in this institution. And the thing that I want to point out to you is that for both sets of, well, for both groups, for each group, um, this was a hellhole. For the people inside who were kept, the, 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 the prisoners, these are people being fed on 63 cents a day. These are people being given one square of toilet paper a day. These are people who, if they weren't married to the mother of their children, they couldn't see their children. They were uh, physically abused. They, they were racially segregated. And uh, crazy rules they had to live with, capricious rules. Like you could get parole in Attica. And then prison management would hand you an out-of-date phone book and say, you can't get out until you write a letter to an employer and the employer hires you. So needless to say, not too many local employers were going to hire some black guy postmark out of New York, right? So this meant that people could not even get parole. It was the kind of capriciousness of the rules, never enforced fairly. And so that's their situation, but the guards they are really fearful. They have 2,400 men in this facility. It's only supposed to have something like 1,700. It's severely overcrowded. They are overworked. They're putting one guard in charge of a company of 80 men to go to do breakfast, to come back. These men are working too many hours. They have no training. They are fearful. And of course, fear is a terrible, terrible thing in a place like this. It makes some people very, very mean and it makes some people very timid. It's not a good cocktail. And so the guards are complaining to their union and they're saying, tell management, we want better training, we want more guards, we want less overtime, uh, and you gotta do something for these guys because this thing is ba bad. I mean, a lot of the guards were even saying, right, we gotta do something about the showers, about the programming, about the food. The really interesting thing about the guys on the inside is that they had this kind of remarkable faith in this country that was just kind of mind-blowing when you look back on it. They're, they're like writing letters to their state senator. They're writing letters to the commissioner of corrections, you know, asking for basic remedy uh, to be, and they're not, you know, they're not asking to get out. They're just saying, you know, can we have enough food, for example? 
Now, there's also a lot of really political guys in the yard, right? The civil rights movement on the outside is definitely on the inside. There are Black Panthers, there are Young Lords. There's lots of political activism. But even the most militant and political guys, they don't want a confrontation because that's a, that's a death wish, right? They know that who's got the power, who's got the guns. Who, you know, so they just want to resolve this thing. So they're asking for help. The guards are asking for help. Needless to say, nobody is listening. But what actually leads on September 9th, 1971, and isn't this picture like pretty incredible? This is actually a like picture of the day this all erupts. You can just see the utter and sheer chaos of this moment. Um, nobody planned it. In fact, this was also a prison management decision. They had essentially made this decision to lock these prisoners in this hallway. They didn't tell the guards what they were doing. They didn't tell the prisoners what they were doing. Sheer panic ensues. And everyone's backing up and arming themselves. And in the midst of this chaos, one of the gates comes open that is sort of like the epicenter of the prison. Why did the gate come open? Because again, there was a faulty weld in the gate the guards had been complaining about to no avail. And it is on the morning of September 9th for at least the first mm, hour, nothing short of a riot. And I use that word very, very deliberately and carefully. Riot meaning chaotic, dangerous, people are getting hurt. There's a guard in the center, the epicenter of the prison named William Quinn. He's the guy with the keys. He gets overrun, he gets beaten, he gets hit. Prisoners are getting beaten, guards are getting beaten, hostages are being taken. It's a nightmare. But what is really extraordinary about this story is that within a very short period of time, this morphs into, and I say this again with the same deliberateness of using the term riot in the previous uh, frame, thus begins one of the most extraordinary human rights struggles in American history writ large. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that. The men move to one of the four exercise yards and they understand the importance of what they have been just essentially handed, which is an opportunity to tell the world what prisons are like. The first thing that they want to do is bring in the media because they understand what prisoners today understand, which is that no one is going to believe us unless we get some eyes on this place inside. So they bring the media in. They immediately begin a process that is really like, imagine a tent city democracy. They each cell block elects a representative to speak for them to the negotiating table. They have had taken hostages because they believe that's the only thing that's going to force the state to negotiate with them. They surround these hostages with two groups of men facing outward to make sure that they are protected, give them mattresses, give them food. They send essentially emissaries to the gates to, well, I mean, before I even get there, they set up a medical tent, they set up a food distribution center, they make sure that everybody's out in the open so that nothing untoward will happen. Uh, they have a security team to make sure that there's no sexual assault. I mean, it's a really kind of remarkable thing. And they send emissaries to the gates to tell these people on the outside who are terrified, right? Their loved ones are inside, they don't know what's going on, saying, look, we just want to end this thing peacefully. We want to have some basic human rights demands met. And again, if you see the list of demands in the book, you'll see they are pretty darn basic. And to do that, they brought in some observers. 
Now, some of you may recognize these people. To the right is Tom Wicker, one of the famed columnists from the New York Times. The prisoners wanted him because he had written some, com uh, some columns favorable to prisoner rights, and he was very upset after George Jackson had been killed in the California prisons and wrote a piece kind of condemning that, so the prisoners thought he's a good guy. In the middle, famed civil rights Marxist lawyer, Bill Kunstler, who was there and who agreed to be these guys' lawyers. To the right is Clarence Jones, who was the editor of the Amsterdam News, a Harlem newspaper. They wanted him because prisoners were often publishing their stories and their letters in this newspaper. But that would be, uh, it would be misleading to say that everybody on the observer's team was the, the prisoner's pick. The state made sure that they had their guys on the observer's team too. There were Republican state senators. There, were, uh, there was a uh, congressman on there, Herman Badillo. There was lots of state senators. I mean, this was a real mix. And ultimately, there was about 35 to 40 at any given time observers. And this was also amazing, right? Because these are people who've never been in prison and they've just suddenly been thrust in this position where it's their job to make sure that the state negotiates in good faith and to try to end this thing peacefully. Why? Because even if you didn't care about all the prisoners inside, there were 40 state employees whose lives were on the line, at least the way that it was looking to anyone who was paying attention. So for four long days and four long nights, this group begins again this kind of historic thing that had never happened negotiations with the state this upper slide on the top left that guy in the little corner you can see that's russell oswald he was the commissioner of corrections the entire docks is in the yard negotiating with these guys i want to call your attention to two other men there one with the sunglasses on he went by the name of big black you're going to hear about him again and also that tall skinny guy ld barkley he had these granny glasses, and um, he was uh, very famous for this kind of uh, this speech that was on the radio that people heard, which was, we are not, we are men, we are not beasts, we refuse to be beaten and driven as such. He was a real, a real figure out in front of this rebellion. Bill Kunstler down here on the right. So these negotiations go on for four days and four nights, and they're incredibly successful. But in the middle of all of this, there is a sticking point. All of a sudden, everything comes to a grinding halt. Because remember that guy that I was telling you about during the riot who had been overrun with the keys, Billy Quinn, young man. And he dies of his injuries. And this is a game changer because on the one hand, he had clearly been killed by prisoners who had beaten him up. But there were so many in there, God knows who had done what, right? Also, he was, got, he was given medical attention because the prisoners also got him out of the prison. In fact, it was in really heartwarming stories. As an aside, I met the daughter of his, his daughter, who years later as an adult met the men who carried him out. It was really this, this story, the tentacles of this story just go on and on and on. But he dies, and this is a horror for his family, as you might imagine, but it is also a horror for the negotiations because now the guys know that every single one of them can be on the hook for felony murder. So now the stakes of surrendering have completely changed. So they are terrified to surrender because they are afraid they will all be indiscriminately prosecuted, and they are also terrified 
because they are, and probably most of them, most terrified about physical reprisals from law enforcement now that this guard has died. So the stakes change. So the observers go to the only man who can settle this, Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller is the man. He's the liberal, liberal Republican in New York. And if anybody could have said, look, we can settle this, you guys can surrender and not be harmed, it was him. And the observers are basically begging him to come to the yard. Not in the yard, but outside of the yard, simply to endorse these guys' ability to surrender and not be harmed, right? Why are the observers so determined to get him here? Because if you see this slide, this is what was also going on during those four long days and four nights of negotiation. Every state trooper battalion in upstate New York had come to Attica. Also, off-duty corrections officers from all the other prisons came to Attica. And for the same four long days and nights where these negotiations were going on inside of the yard, outside of the yard, these guys were getting madder and madder, and they are passing out weapons like indiscriminately. Nobody's writing down serial numbers. No, people are taking their personal weapons from home. Ammunition is getting distributed that's been outlawed by the Geneva Convention. You're talking about hunting rifles. You're talking about bullets that explode upon impact. And it is frightening out here. And the observers can see this. And even more importantly, I know from my research that the FBI is fueling these guys' fury telling them, planting these rumors and innuendo, basically, that the prisoners are committing all these atrocities inside that were not even happening, right? So this is a critical situation. And Rockefeller says, basically, hell no, he's not coming. So then the observers appeal to the state of New York citizenry and basically say, call this guy. Beg him to come to Attica. And this was the statement that they issued. And if you read it very carefully, you can see they minced no words. If you do not come to Attica, if you do not settle this thing peacefully, this is what is about to happen. And they use the word massacre. Again, no, no equivocation here. Well, it's its own story, but I now know what we have not known for 46 years, which is that the state of New York, in particular Rockefeller, had no intention of settling with these guys peacefully. They had been trying to go in. They were going to go in with force. And it's a really interesting story because why didn't they send in, for example, the National Guard, who was actually trained in prison riot control? Um, well, one could speculate that's because Kent State had happened, and, and Nelson Rockefeller did not need any massacre of the National Guard to be on his hands after Kent State. Interestingly, he put the lowest level troopers in charge of this retaking, and later it's pretty clear so he could have maximum, right, maximum deniability. But on the fifth morning, and this is what we need to know, on the fifth morning, after all these successful negotiations and all that needs to happen is to somehow work on this question of amnesty so that these guys can give up and the, and the hostages can be released safely. And by the way, the media's come in, interviewed all the hostages, and the hostages are like, we've been treated well. 
give these guys what they need. You know, we want to go home. And on the fifth morning, it is cold. It is September in upstate New York before global warming. And, uh, and it's, these guys want to give up. It's, it's done, right? But they, but they still believe that negotiations are going on. And why they believe negotiations are still going on is because there was nothing new that they could see, right? We now know in my book that's because the state of New York deliberately did not give them an ultimatum that morning. So when they came to the door, basically, of the gate, and they said, you know, surrender of the hostages today, give up, we're done, they had said that same thing every day. So inside of the yard, these guys think it's the same old business as usual. You, know, you ask us to give up the hostage, no, we're not. You know, bring the observers back, we're going to negotiate. And then they hear the sound of a helicopter revving up. And to show you kind of the poignancy of the faith, you know, it just is one of the things throughout this book, I was constantly kind of humbled by one of the tragedies of this entire story is the faith of the most marginalized citizens that people with power would do the right thing, even when they had no reason to think that would happen. But some of them think that Rockefeller's coming in this helicopter. And there's kind of this moment of elation, like he's coming, right? We're going to be able to. And then the more savvy of them, though, they realize we haven't seen the observers today. We're getting really nervous. And then time is ticking. And finally, panic sets in. And they decide to implement a last-ditched effort to keep the state out. And they talked about it. But man, was it risky. They would take some of the hostages up on these catwalks that hovered over the yards. And they'd put several prisoners around each of the hostages with these makeshift weapons, like to be their kind of so-called executioners, right? And, they, and then when this helicopter's coming up, they're like, see, see? Like, don't come in, because if you do, we're going to, you know, you're, take, you're killing your own men, right? Don't come in. And, you know, a lot of the hostages knew that this was the plan, and the prisoners knew this was a plan. And in the book, I take you up onto the, to the catwalk, and you are there with these men. The thing about this book, the way I tried to write it, is that one minute you're in D-Yard, one minute you're in Rockefeller's house, and one minute you're in, you know, the White House, and now you're up on the catwalk. And these guys are terrified. They are sick. They are shaking. And I take you into this moment where one of the guards, Michael Smith, 24, I think, years old, is up there. And he's got these prisoners around him with these weapons. And he's nervous, right, because he knows what the plan's supposed to be. But at any moment, right, the plan can go really, really wrong. And to his, I believe, right, is a prisoner, Don Noble. And he and Don knew each other because they'd worked together in the metal shop in Attica. And in fact, Mike was one of the good guy guards. In fact, he had kind of read some of their earlier letters and demands, and he said, yeah, man, this seems reasonable to me. And so they're up there terrified, and they are sh exchanging personal information. Mike is saying to Don, you know, he had this little note secured deep in his pocket, and he says, man, if I don't get out, can you tell my wife Sharon I love her? And Don is like, oh, yeah, and if I don't get out, right, you know, and he's, and they're 
basically, it's like, you know, last rites going on up there practically, right? And just then, and Mike tells you this in the book, they hear the sound of another helicopter. And they're up there on the catwalk, and Mike Smith describes it. He said it was so loud. It was a much bigger helicopter, and it was so loud and so close. He said you could feel the concussion in your chest. And as these guys are literally shaking, I mean, you know, knees shaking, that helicopter starts to drop canisters of CN and CS gas across the yard and onto the catwalks. Now, this is tear gas. But in my book, I explained to you that it is not just what you might imagine, gas, you know, you know, a fog in the air. This is a powder, and it clings to your mucous membranes and in your eyes and down your throat and in your nose. And you can see in the film, because the state troopers were filming all this, that when the gas is dropped, it mows everybody down. And everybody is on the ground. They are blinded. They are throwing up. They are retching. And then, right at that moment, the ground assault begins. Nearly 300 troopers descend and corrections officers go in over those catwalks shooting. Some of them multiple weapons. And before they go in, they took off their identifying badges, which we only know because some of these guys were good guys, and they were so horrified by what went down that day, they later testified to this. Within 15 minutes, all, for 15 minutes, all you can hear is da 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 except for one other thing, which is the helicopter, which is still hovering overhead with the megaphone intoning over and over and over again, surrender with your hands up and you won't be harmed. Surrender with your hands up and you, to the sound of this gunfire. Needless to say, it was utter carnage. 39 men, prisoners and hostages alike, were shot to death. But a total of 128 men were shot, some of them so severely, some of them six, seven bullet wounds. The title of the book is Blood in the Water, and I get that title from a later, uh, the later testimony of a prisoner who is cowering on the ground. Remember, it's raining, it's cold, and it was a quote from him. He's looking, he's trying to hold his head down, and he says, and I looked up, and all I could see was blood in the water. That is how much shooting there had been. But here's the deal. That is not what the American public heard, not even close. The state of New York steps out not a half an hour later and says to the American public something completely different happened. The prisoners killed the hostages. They slit their throats. And not only that, these barbarians, these animals, had actually castrated one of the guards and shoved his testicles in his mouth. And they'd actually killed some of the prisoners and some of the hostages ahead of time. Notably, to give them credit, at least for a few seconds, the press kind of pushed, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, 
We, we saw it with our own eyes. We got film of it. We have evidence of it. And not only that, I'll tell you who did it. It was a prisoner, Frank Smith. You know who Frank Smith was? Big Black. Remember the guy with the, that's who did it. That's what they said. The guard who was castrated, supposedly, the guy I was just telling you about, who had the note to his wife, Sharon. He had been shot four times across the abdomen in complete precision in a way that could not have happened had he not been targeted, by the way, by a fellow corrections officer. But that's not what the American public heard. What the American public heard was that the prisoners were the animals. And here's the deal. Remember I told you the press was there? This story went out on the front page of the New York Times. I'll read this for you. Here's one of the headlines. This reflects a barbarism wholly alien to civilized society. Prisoners slashed the throats of utterly helpless, unarmed guards whom they held captive through around-the-clock negotiations in which the inmates held out for an increasingly revolutionary set of demands. Did not happen. This is the front page of the LA Times. Same thing. But here's the real kicker. The AP was there. And you all know the AP is the news source that goes out to every small town in America. So tiny, tiny towns from Iola, Kansas to Holland, Michigan to God knows how many small towns in Minnesota, Americans were told that the prisoners were animals. And I cannot tell you how profoundly important this was. Because overnight, a generation of voters who had been ready for prison reform against the death penalty, ready to start shutting prisons down and talk about community corrections, overnight is clamoring for the death penalty, is demanding harsher sentencing, thinks that the civil rights movement is a sham, thinks that prisoner rights is nothing but a coddling of violent thugs, and the implications of this are pretty profound. But here's the tragedy, because inside of this facility, this is what's going on. These guys are being stripped. This picture on the left should horrify you, because it could be out of any number of horrendous moments in world history. By the way, Rockefeller calls Nixon during the middle of this. And Nixon basically has one question. Was this a black business? And Rockefeller says pretty much, yes, Mr. President, indeed it was. And that's all he needed to know. But if you look at this, you can very clearly see that this was not just a black business, right? This was a human business. And the guy on that table, you can maybe not see, he's got a football under his neck, he's naked, that is Big Black. Because they said he had castrated Mike Smith, he is on that table for hours and hours and hours while they torture him. And they tell him that if he drops the football from his neck, they're gonna shoot him in the head. And he believes it, because he's already seen so many people killed, including, remember the tall skinny guy with the granny glasses? who, by the way, was 21 years old and was in Attica for a parole violation, everybody said that he was alive after order had been maintained in the yard. So people were being assassinated after the state had full control. This picture of him, by the way, you might ask yourself, why do we have these pictures? These are state police photographs. 
This is basically considerate lynching photography. These photographs, the, the existence of which were denied for many years, this is Big Black on the table after his ordeal. His wrists are broken, his body is burned, and he's about ready to go into a whole nother round of torture in this picture. But we don't hear this. I won't even read you the quote at the top of what's going on. Medics can't get in, doctors can't get in, people are doing, people are dying on their, people are having surgery with no anesthesia in the field for the doctors who were able to get in. And here's what's happening to the hostages. Remember that they're dying too, right? So it's not just prisoner families who have lost a husband or a father or a brother, it's also guards and it's also civilian employees. And as they are grieving the loss of their loved ones, or as they are recuperating in the hospital, a whole nother horrendous thing is going on, which is that the state of New York is showing up at the widow's houses, one of whom say, Mrs. Cunningham has just lost her husband. She has eight children, and he was the main breadwinner. And they said, you know, Mrs. Cunningham, here's a little check to tide you over, you know? 100 bucks, 50 bucks, depending on the family. Or if there's a guard who's recuperating in the hospital, you know, you know, here, Mr. Stockholm, here's just a little something to tide you over. We got your back. Take a little time off, right? What they did not tell them, but what they knew, and my book shows very clearly, was a setup, was that when those people cashed that check, they had elected a remedy under New York state law to never sue their employer for the death of their loved one in one of the most diabolical acts. But again, the American public doesn't know this, and these hostage families, th these are families that endured horrible trauma. They lost everything. They became impoverished overnight. Families descended into, you know, there was suicide. I mean, you just can't even imagine. But the American people didn't hear this. Now, you would expect that there were some loved ones that are, I'm sorry, some heroes in the story, and there were. The story is not an unrelenting and unmitigated <laughs> nightmare. There are some really incredible people, including the coroner, who are, who, who, we've got these people writing telegrams like this, right, which are violent and lock them up and why are any of them alive? But then you've got a coroner who's looking at these bodies and he's saying, wait a minute, Every one of these hostages has been killed by a bullet. And the guys inside, there were no guns. And for his troubles, the Rockefeller administration tried to discredit him. They tried to say he's a commie sympathizer, even though he was a Nixon voter. And they send in two other coroners to do autopsies. This guy is hounded for the rest of his life. He has a horrible life after this. But he tried to do the right thing. And other people tried to do the right thing. There were a number of investigations into this. There was a public hearing, the McKay Commission, which was very, very important. But remember that there's also a cover-up going on, and we didn't even know the half of it until I happened upon the records that I did, and those are, uh, those are some of the stories that people had not heard about Attica before. So they could only report on what they could get access to, right? So that was limited. There were congressional hearings. Those were limited. There was a federal investigation, a Justice Department investigation. They never saw any reason for a civil rights suit. 
which is kind of shocking considering that medics and doctors and National Guardsmen were reporting the horror shows, including the sodomy quote that I showed you up there. The FBI, the FBI knew about that. Nobody was doing a Justice Department investigation. The most important investigation in Attica is this one. It is Rockefeller's investigation. And Rockefeller, very interestingly, puts this investigation in something called the Organized Crime Task Force Unit, the OCTF, which is the mob unit. Because he wants to show that this is a leftist conspiracy, basically. And what the book reveals to you is that this thing was a cover-up from the start. I found a couple of smoking gun documents, one of the most important of which indicated that right after Attica, there was a series of meetings in, and I, you just can't make this stuff up, Rockefeller's pool house in his mansion in upstate New York. And who was there? Attorney General, Rockefeller's men, but also the head of the New York State Police, and they're all there getting their story straight. And the New York State Police are the ones that are put in charge of the investigation. The same ones that had done the retaking. They're in there collecting the evidence. They're in there interrogating prisoners. They're in there collecting enough evidence to ultimately charge 62 prisoners with everything that had happened at Attica and not one single member of law enforcement. And that was why for me, no matter how much I could get at the story from coming at it upside down and sideways and backwards, the thing I could not answer was, how did that happen? Until I found this cache of records. And that's why in the book, after 45 years, I actually name the shooters who were protected all of those years later. Now, why does this matter for our purposes back to our original slides of mass incarceration? Because remember that first America is told that everything about Attica is down to the prisoners, right? All the horror, the barbarity of it all. And then for the next years, they're watching these black prisoners in and out of courtrooms in upstate New York, the Attica trials, the Attica trials. What's wrong with all of Attica? The prisoners are, not one member of law enforcement is brought in, in there in handcuffs. Nobody does any time. And so again, this reinforcing narrative that prisoners are animals who do not deserve any basic rights. Now, I'm gonna end very, very quickly now to say, as depressing and repressive as this story is, if you read the book, you will not, I hope, find it to be uh, an unmitigated, depressing story. The first third of the book is about the uprising, which has a very, has some amazing moments in it. I tell you in those amazing first moments, for example, about a prisoner named Owl, an old man, who is out there the first night, and he has got tears just running down his face. And one of the fellow guys in the yard says to him, you know, what's, what's wrong? And he just, he's just staring in wonderment, and he says, I have not seen the stars in 22 years. And so you have these human moments in that yard. You have the horror of the retaking. Then you have the horror of the cover-up of the investigation. But you also have 
one of the most extraordinary legal defense efforts in American history that is up there with the Scottsboro Boys. Young law students and lawyers descend on upstate New York from all over the country to defend these guys, very successfully defend these guys, and that's part of the story. And the other thing is that the prisoners themselves defend themselves. They never stop talking. This is Big Black. And he stood up, and for 30 years, he mobilized and got the Attica brothers, as they called themselves, mobilized. And finally, they had a day in court. And they will tell you that they didn't get justice, not even close to justice, but it was the closest thing to justice they were ever going to get, which was at least a financial settlement. Similarly, the guards got together. And it took them forever and ever. In fact, they did not settle with the state until 2005. But that is why this book is, in many respects, it is a trauma, it is a cautionary tale, and it is a humbling story of how repressive our society can be. But it is also this David and Goliath story where small people triumph and where nobody ever gives up, and in fact, for the prisoners and for the hostages, the enduring legacy of Attica, despite where we are today and despite that horrifically wrong turn we took with mass incarceration and with this punitive ethos where now, for example, we have in my state 400 children serving life sentences without parole, and in Pennsylvania 400, and where we have more Americans serving life sentences than in any other time in American history, and more in solitary than in any time. Despite that horrific wrong turn, what Attica reminds us is that everybody behind bars remains a human being, no matter what it is that got them there in the first place. And uh, you're never allowed to forget that in this book, because their stories are the stories that you read from the beginning into the end, and so it's my hope with the book that it gives us an opportunity to honor the stories of those people who were, by the way, told that they were lying, uh, that nothing had happened to them, uh, that they were, um, that no torture had happened, no trauma had happened. The book honors their story. Uh, the book finally, I think, points the fingers where the fingers should have been pointed 45 years ago, but it also allows us to see that the moment that we're in right now is not, we're not here just because we were evil people, even as voters or even as citizens, that we were lied to and that we were swindled about what really goes on in prisons in our name. And we were told something that just simply wasn't the case. And we built an entire apparatus of policy on it. It wasn't just Attica. It was also Kent State. It was Wounded Knee. It was Orangeburg. It was Jackson State. It was the Chicago Convention in 1968. Think about all of those episodes where the enduring violence was state violence. And somehow we all got sold this bill of goods that students are violent, prisoners are violent, Chicanos are violent, Indians are violent. And we just sucked it up. We believed it because we did not demand the true history of what had happened. So I hope that this book at least is one step in that direction.
With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Heather Ann Thompson and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what kind of criminals were held in Attica. Were they all serious offenders? Complete mix. So there was a whole lot of parole violators in there, like L.D. Barkley. People in there for well, two, two, two of the twins I write about in there were there because one of them had cut the convertible top of his neighbor. Um, and there were a whole lot of youthful offenders that had been in Elmira, which was the youth facility, and then put in Attica to finish their terms once they hit 18. And there were people there who were murderers. And there were people there who were burglars, and there were people there who were everything you might imagine. But like all facilities, it was a huge mix. And because it was a maximum security facility, we all just believed, well, everybody in there was an animal. So that narrative was a very convenient narrative. But in fact, even today, you might be surprised to know that, um, you know, when we talk, even today, we talk about violent crime. And what horrific things come to our minds when we think of violent crime. And there are horrific things that have happened to real human beings who have been victimized by violent crime. So we don't want to gloss over it. Murder, rape, assault, and so forth. But many of the crimes that, were, that got people in prison then and today are drug-related crimes. And by that, I don't even just mean possession or sales. I mean the violence that accompanies the drug trade, right? So carjackings, burglaries, that kind of stuff. And the same thing was true then. Just like today, there was also a lot of mentally ill people, right? A lot of Vietnam vets were in Attica suffering PTSD. So like today, it was a real microcosm of society. Bad guys, good guys. But as the book will make clear to you, all remaining human beings who were given a sentence, not a death sentence. And that's kind of what you're kind of forced, I think, to, to, to face here, is that you know, this is not what they were sentenced to. This next question is why Governor Rockefeller took part in the cover-up of the Attica prison riot. So I got to know Rock, I feel like I got to know Rockefeller pretty well over the course of this book, and I found him fascinating. Because on the one hand, yes, we all of a certain age, we all remember Rockefeller as kind of one of the good guy, liberal Republican, uh, you know, kind of the, the Kennedy Republican, if you will. And he was, but he, I came to know him as an intensely opportunist, an intense opportunist. So in some respects, I now understand him to be more liberal because the country was quite liberal when he ascended to power. But as soon as the country began to move in a much more conservative direction, he really just wanted to be the president. And as Nixon was taking his thunder, you know, stealing his thunder, Attica was that moment where he was going to show everybody that he was tough on crime too, that he was not gonna coddle criminals and this was gonna be his line in the sand. And the other thing about Rockefeller that's very interesting to me is that whereas Nixon was very much of a race baiter, like he was very, very vocal about his racial politics. Interestingly with Rockefeller, that was not so much what was driving him. I mean, clearly he was, you know, clearly he was racially discriminatory, but he was really a cold warrior. He was really concerned about communism. 
And so to him, Attica was not just about being tough on crime. It was also, he saw this as a lefty revolutionary plot that he was going to shut down, even more so than I think Nixon did. But he's a fascinating character. And, um, and Attica just about deep sixes him. You should know, I didn't, I didn't say this, um, but this is important. The huge investigation into the, all of this stuff that was so terrible because it was so corrupt, it gets shut down. And it gets shut down because there was a whistleblower on the inside of the Attica investigation. And it was instrumental to me because I found his document. It was one of the things that allowed me to kind of name names. But when he did this, the whistleblower, he was a prosecutor. The reason why he became a whistleblower was because he was told to help prosecute cops. They were going to, you know, they'd prosecuted inmates. Now they were going to prosecute cops. And then all of a sudden, he's about ready to do it. And he is just shut down. He's like, what the what? You know, we know, I mean, some of those cops had actually admitted who they'd killed. Why aren't we? When this gets shut down is when Rockefeller has just been nominated to be the vice president of the United States. And that's when everything shuts down. And the whistleblower, his name is Malcolm Bell, his speculation was that there was no way that he was going to let his, any of his state troopers get indicted when he was going to be about ready to finally uh, get his uh, address at the White House. So it's just a fascinating story, political intrigue at a whole different, you know, even beyond all this other stuff we talked about. This question is about the attitudes today of the guards who took part in the violent retaking of Attica. Do any of them feel remorse or guilt? You know, I, I'm so glad you asked that question because um, it was really messy. You know, most of the state police that went into Attica, not only did they defend it then, but they defend it now. That's why I still can't get access to all the records. You should know that the records to Attica are still closed. After all this, after this book, the records are still closed. And the reason why they're so closed, remember, there's no statute of limitations on murder. And so who's the one at the gate keeping saying, don't open the records, don't open the gate? Records, it's the, it's the state police that say that. On the other hand, and this is why it's messy, when the prisoners finally had their day in court, there were some extraordinary individuals who were so traumatized by what they had seen, some of them what they had done, that they were haunted for the rest of their lives. They came forward, they testified. The reason we know that those troopers took their identifying badges off before they went in was from a fellow trooper. Um, I interviewed uh, a guy, uh, actually a friend of mine interviewed, and I got the transcript of a guy who um, was one of the Monroe County sheriffs who was instrumental in putting those tear gas canisters in the, in the uh, helicopter. And he was there, and he saw what the carnage was afterwards, and he just broke down. I mean, people were traumatized. There was not one single person that I interviewed for this book or talked to for this book that did, at some point did not just completely completely fall apart. And that included members of law enforcement. So, you know, when the club stays together, nobody admits responsibility, but on an individual basis, yeah, they did see the moral uh, irony of it or immorality of it, I should say. Another audience member wonders if Thompson sees any connections between the events outlined in her book and the excessive use of police force happening around the country today. 
So I, I love that question because it, it'll give you a little bit of insight also into the publishing industry, which is that um, you know the book actually came out in August of 2016, right? And it was completely embargoed before then because I was so afraid that the police would, you know, try to some way prevent it from being published. But the book was done well before that, right? As you might imagine. So in this interim, meanwhile, our nation is exploding from the time I finished the book to the time that um, uh, the book com actually comes out. So the epilogue talks about prison uh, prisoners standing up against prison conditions, but things like Ferguson and Baltimore and police violence, which it was all kind of unfolding, and Eric Garner, and, all, and of course that's the work I do, so it was always in my mind, but I was thinking I need to keep this focused on prisons. Once the book came out, many of the interviews I did and the public talks I did, I was always making those connections and basically saying, look, here we've got a situation when if you see in Charleston a police officer shoot a man in the back and you say, well, how does that man not get prosecuted? All you got to do is read this book. This is a long history. And, 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 and conversely, when you have a case where someone doesn't get prosecuted or if they do get prosecuted and they don't get, or they don't get found guilty, as was in the case with the Freddie Gray case, um, don't assume there wasn't evidence. Because the thing that happens at Attica that's just so humbling, and you know because you, you read it, I mean, these guys are doctoring photographs. They are splicing film. There's a photograph, and it's in the book, of a guy who is dead. He has been shot to death, and he's in this very contorted position on the ground. And then there's a slide I show you right next to that slide, and it's the exact same position, and he's got a big knife in his hand. And he clearly couldn't have picked it up. And that was the level of doctoring of evidence that was going on. And so I didn't even predict the ways in which that would all become so newsworthy, but I was very glad that it did. And I was able to constantly say, you know, to my press as it was coming out, we need to draw these parallels, right? Because, and they were totally agreed. Yes, this is really interesting. This is all happening now. The other thing implicit in what you're asking though is who, to whom is this story of Attica a surprise? And I've been doing Attica Talks for the last 14 months, you know, two, three cities a week, all over this country. And of course, the answer is um, the prisoners always knew what happened. Uh, black folks already knew what happened. Activists knew what happened because they had rallied around the Attica brothers, you know, black and white. So when I refer to the people who didn't know about Attica, that's just kind of the country more generally, right? People who just were not connected either because they were white or because they didn't know anyone in the inside or they were not particularly from a politically, you know, liberal or lefty family. But there's always that community that I talk through, they're like, yeah, we knew that, right? So the thing about not knowing is never that nobody knew, it's that the public narrative did not acknowledge. And you would, I think we would all admit that's exactly what goes on today, right? It's not that Eric Garner's family doesn't know what happened to him in Staten Island. It's the kind of the rest of the country that's sort of surprised, like, really? Like, they, did, they just, did they just really just kill him right there in front of the camera? Like, <laughs> and of course, to the family, it's like, yes. And this happens all the time, right? This question asker inquires about the conditions of today's prisons. Are they similar to what Attica was like over 40 years ago? 
In 2016, when the book came out, um, again, another one of these moments I did not predict because this happened after the book came out, September 9th, on the anniversary of this prison uprising, about 24,000 prisoners across the country initiated a prison strike. And I tell you 24,000, there was probably more. I don't know, we don't know, you don't know, because prisons are the most closed institutions in our country, despite the fact we pay for them, despite the fact that they are public. But there was a whole lot of prisoners standing up. And what were the issues? Exactly the same. Overcrowding, racial abuse, um, you know, terrible conditions. And just like in Attica, a lot of the guards were saying, yes, we've been telling you, these places are hell holes. So my concern about this story is that not only are we on the cusp of so many more Atticas in terms of prisoners' desperation and standing up, but I fear that the response will be just as ugly. And that just like in Attica, uh, we won't know what happened because, uh, I'll give you an example just really quickly. There was a prison uprising at Vaughn Prison in Delaware uh, last year. And I was in Toronto giving a talk when this thing went down and I was constantly monitoring, monitoring the news because reporters were calling me to talk about it and I knew I was gonna be on the uh, mor uh, morning news show, uh, Fox News in the morning television and have to be a commentator. So I wanted to know exactly what was going on. And over Vaughn Prison all night long was a helicopter hovering over to, to watching, some of you may remember this, it was on the news. And I basically stayed up all night watching this thing. And it was just like with sick trepidation, you know, cause like, what is going on? What is going on? They had taken guards hostages. There was like a hundred prisoners in there. Horrible, horrible prison, you know, terrible, terrible conditions, overcrowding, too much solitary, you name it. And I get on the air that morning and then all of a sudden, and the newscaster and I are watching it together, the all of a sudden prisoners are coming out and they're being lined up and they're being forced to lay on the asphalt and there's law enforcement. And the reporter's saying, you know, what do you think's happening? What do you think's happening? And I said, well, I think pretty clearly they've stormed the prison. I think it's over now. And, and then I just felt sick because that's when I knew that's the most dangerous time because that's when you have no idea what's gonna come next. So what happened next was deeply alarming. There was a spokesperson that came out like an hour later and they said only two things, but think about how significant this is. One of them was a female hostage has been taken to the hospital. So just think about that for a minute. What's your mind thinking? Where are you going with that, right? Like, God, what did they do to her is the first thing you're thinking, right? And I'm not saying they didn't do anything to her. I'm just telling you that this is all they said was, right? And the second thing was, and a guard has been killed. Now, no, no, and a guard has died. I'm sorry, not has been killed. And a guard has died. So imagine where your mind goes, right? So immediately everyone who's watching this is thinking that the woman has undoubtedly been sexually assaulted and the male guard has been killed by prisoners. But very notably, we didn't get any follow-up from that, right? And all I could think from Attica was, wow, we have just unleashed in that prison a reign of terror on those guys. But we don't know anything. Undoubtedly, anyone who would have been a hostage would have been taken to the hospital. That's logical, right? Does that tell us anything about anything? No. 
And in fact, we found out later that these guys had actually released a lot of the hostages. They started off with something like 10. They, came to, they, they ultimately only had two. And the guy died, but did he die from the prisoners? Did he die from the assault on the prison? Did he die from a heart attack? It's horrific that he died, but the point is, is we don't know. And so the worst thing about the Attica effect is what I call it, is that it's after the rebellion that the most horrific and dangerous things happen. And we just don't know a thing about it. And the only reason we know about Attica is because it was 1971 and there's a whole lot of people in the movement and people who were lawyers and people who were family, they just kept banging on the door and saying, let us in. What's going on in there? Let us in. And we are not banging on any doors today. You know, and I think that's, that's a humbling thing, right? Because uh, these, are, these are our public institutions. The last question of the night is about how Thompson accessed some of the hidden materials to help her research for this book. So I mentioned to you that um, the records were sealed. And so I had imagined doing what every historian imagines doing writing a book, which is that you go to the library and you, or the archive, and you ask for box 20 and folder 13, and you know, you reconstruct the story and you write a book. Well, there was no archive, and so I had to kind of come at this sideways and backwards. So if like I wanted to know something about Attica, I realized, well, the guards are unionized, so let me go look at the records of their union. You know, like kind of always coming at it peripherally. But I still could not figure out the question of the cover-up. And I had been calling every upstate New York courthouse, do you have Attica records? Do you have Attica records? Because I knew there'd been trials. And I didn't even know the litigants' names. I mean, this is how shut down this was. And like, you know, who, who I didn't have case numbers, but do you have Attica records? Because I knew that there had been all these guys who had stood trial, so there has to be somewhere in upstate New York. No, we don't have Attica records. No, we don't. And then finally, one day in 2004, I get this, this call from this clerk in Erie County, which is Buffalo, which is where these trials were. She says, I think we do have some Attica records. What? I mean, this is after, like, you know, are you kidding me? It was actually 2006. And um, so I was a professor at the time in North Carolina. And this is relevant to my story. I was barely making any money whatsoever. So to be able to just jump in a plane and go to upstate New York, I had three little kids, not easy. But I'm like, I'm gonna, I gotta get up there. So I go up there and I go into, the, she takes me into this back room and there are Attica records as big as this wall, floor to ceiling. And it is a hodgepodge. It is a blizzard of papers. There's no logic to them. And I'm just kind of startled, and I start pulling things off the shelf. I'm like, oh my god, this is grand jury testimony. These are autopsy reports. These are investigator notes. These are trooper statements. Oh my god. And I was only going to be there for like two days, and I'm thinking, how am I going to get this stuff out of there? What, what am I going to do? And, you know, I will be a liar if I didn't say for a minute there I was contemplating, like, ooh, you know, under the skirt. But, you know, I didn't want to end up in Attica, so I, I, I you know, thought better of that. But, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. And my students to this day will say to me, but why didn't you just scan it? You know, get out your phone, scan it, man. Uh, I'm sorry, this was 2006. There were no smartphones in 2000. I had, like, a Nokia, dee, 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 you know, it was useless. Um, and so I was really panicked because I knew how critical this was, in particular when I found the 169-page whistleblowing document. 
And man, it laid it out, what the state knew, when they knew it, and who they didn't indict, including names. And that was the critical document and the document that was the Rockefeller cover-up, what was happening in their pool house. And there's lots of other things I found. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get this out of here. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll try to make copies. So I, but there's no procedure because this is just a hodgepodge. These aren't files, like how do you even ask? So I asked to see the clerk of court who was an elected position in upstate New York. And to this day, I feel very, very guilty about this because he was an elected official, you know, this kind of handsome, quaffed guy, you know, he'd run for office and, um, you know, politician. And I said, you know, you ha turns out you do have Attica records, you know, and I might have said, because I'm doing a project on that. No, I didn't. <laughs> I said it was a book. But I was trying to just like p minimize the significance of this because I knew that if they knew what was in there, man, that stuff was just going to go. So he says, well, you know, I think that'd be probably fair. You know, we could probably do some, some Xeroxing. That'd be okay. And then I realized it's $1.50 a page. Because <laughs> this is a law, law, you know, this is what legal documents cost. And I was like, you know, making $36,000 a year or something as a professor. I'm like, you know, just like there's no way. I said, can we work something out? And he says, well, you know, what do you think would be fair? And I said, well, how about if I gave you a check, because we used to write checks back then, <coughs> a, a check for $200 for like as much as I could Xerox. Would that be okay? He's like, well, I think that would be fair. This is actually very significant because I have a canceled check. And so then I said, oh, thank God. I can make some copies. And then he says, so you'll have to give the documents to, I don't remember her name, to make all the copies. And I thought, oh, God, right? Because... You know, you don't have to have a PhD in a JD to see what it says, the special grand jury of the state of New York on the documents, right? And I want to get these copies, but I don't want them to just take one look and just shut it down. And so that's why it was kind of funny, because, or not, sort of cloak and daggery, because I then had to decide what I was going to copy. And so I was taking stuff off of the shelf, some of which I needed, much of which I did not, kind of putting what I needed and what I didn't all together. And the funny part was I was so nervous that when I hand her the stack to start Xeroxing, because literally it is a this kind of, you know, like piece by piece. And I'm just like, oh my God, she's going to start looking at it. So then I just start talking to her. Oh my God, is that your granddaughter? Blue eyes. Does she look like your husband? Where did you get that sweater? Target? Oh my God, do you think they still have that? That woman must have thought I was such a lunatic that she was ready to get me out of there. Uh, I actually have no idea what she thought, but it was this my desperation to make sure those things did not disappear. Okay, fast forward to right before the book came out. And I got a call from a reporter who had managed to find out where I got these documents, and I still don't know how. And um, he says, so oh, I hear you've got, you found Attica documents, really important Attica documents in the Erie County Courthouse. And I just, my heart sunk. And part of it was not very charitable on my part because the selfish part of me was like, are you kidding me? I've worked on this for 13 years. Are you gonna go, <laughs> are you gonna go in there and like this is gonna be on the front page of the newspaper in five minutes? No, that the much more serious part of me was like, look, please just give me a chance to get this book out because I was afraid that if he alerted them that this stuff was gonna disappear. He calls me a week later, he was angry and he says, you told me that there were Attica documents and I went there and I demanded for the, to see the Attica documents and they said they've never had any Attica documents and there are no Attica documents. And I just said, let me guess. 
You called him up, you alerted them, and then they called him back a week later and says, ah, actually, we do have a box of documents, and they handed him one box. Now, remember, I've just painted a picture for him. One box, and in the box was the indictments of the prisoners. Now, first of all, those are public documents, and second of all, very notably, again, it was kind of continuing this narrative of whose problem this was, and everything else has disappeared. I have no idea where it is. And that's one thing that disappeared. The second thing, really quickly, was that in 2011, I did an op-ed in the New York Times on this story, and then simultaneously, coincidentally, but simultaneously, some state troopers turned over a bunch of Attica artifacts from the barracks where they had been stored for the trials. And this guy calls me up from the New York State Museum and Library, and he says, can you come up and tell me what I have? Hang on, I'll get on a plane, I'll be there in a minute. And it was fascinating, I mean, heartbreaking. You know, they had collected every baseball bat from the yard because they used it as a weapon. They had, I saw, like, everyone's cells had been tossed, so it was like pictures of their children ripped up and their writings, and, and there was like, you know, in, in, in prison, you have to handwrite everything, so painstaking, their legal pleadings destroyed. Um, I opened up boxes, picked up bloody clothes of, like, L.D. Barkley, the guy, this tall, skinny kid, and one of the guards, Carl Vallone. I mean, just their clothes were still there. And that guy, that archivist, librarian, was such an amazing guy. I persuaded him with this filmmaker I was working with to just alert, alert some of the survivors, you know, give them back some of the stuff, like, you know, the badges and the caps and some of these letters. And he did. And man, let's just say he lost his job. And all of that stuff is off limits. We ha can't see it. It's not public. I don't know where it is. And when my book came out, I actually did not know he'd lost his job, and I basically sent him a book. And he was another one. I was like, I'm sorry. Because, you know, this is a story that continues to be shut down. Like, there's just, and, and I think there's a lot more to it. The book is 700 pages, so thank God for all of you. I didn't find out anymore. But I think there's still a federal story here. I think that the FBI was on the scene every step of the way. I think there's more there that we don't know. And so, you know, maybe there'll be someone else will come along and find that. But in the meantime, I think this story has got a lot to chew on and a lot for us to think about. But thank you for that question. And thank all of you for uh, coming out tonight. Thank you. That wraps up our Dakota County Library Wentworth event with Heather Ann Thompson. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Alan Eskins at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Lawyer turned novelist Alan Eskins burst onto the thriller scene in 2014 with his compulsively suspenseful and award-winning mystery, The Life We Bury. Homicide detective Max Rupert is back in Eskins' fourth acclaimed novel, The Deep Dark Descending. It hit shelves in October. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. 
Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.